This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Well, hello, everybody. How are you? And thank you guys for joining us today. My name is Jimmy Choi. I have the pleasure and, of course, the honor of being your moderator today. I'm a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, and I've been living with Parkinson's disease for over 19 years. Today, our panelists will discuss autonomic issues in Parkinson's disease. We will talk about autonomic nervous system and how it's affected by Parkinson's. We will also cover symptoms such as low blood pressure, bladder problems, constipation, and sweating. And of course, we will discuss ways to treat them both medically and through changes in lifestyle. So we've got a lot to discuss today, so let's get started. So let me first introduce our distinguished panelists. Uh, Joining us today, we have Brett Parker. Brett is the co-chair of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, and he is also the executive director of the New York City Bar Association. Brett was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2007 at the age of 38. We also have Dr. Anna Holler, a movement disorder specialist, a chair of neurology at St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and she regularly sees people with Parkinson's in her clinic, and she also does research focused on autonomic dysfunction. Finally, joining us from all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, please welcome Dr. Ray Chowdhury. Professor of Movement Disorders and Neurology at King's College Hospital in London. His research specializes in non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So let's start from the top, the autonomic nervous system. Dr. Chaudhary, if you can, please describe to us the autonomic nervous system. Hi, Jimmy, thank you. Thank you for having me in this fantastic program and thank you to all listening in. Autonomic nervous system uh, is an ubiquitous part of our body. It helps us breathe, it helps us sleep, it helps us open our bowel, our bladder, it helps us having sex, and also, most importantly, it helps us maintain our blood pressure. It is the reason the normal autonomic nervous system prevents us from fainting when we stand, for instance. So it's basically a control system, a very complicated and complex control system within the body, It has a peripheral component, which are the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nerves, which um, innervate virtually all our internal organs, the sweat glands, the skin, and so on. And then it spreads to the spinal cord, the connections to the spinal cord. And from therein, it stretches to the brain. So there are important centers within the brain, particularly the lower part of the brain, the brainstem, that ultimately gives us control over the system. Now, in this slide, you'll see a network of nerves that are controlling blood pressure, bladder, heart, temperature, digestion, sexual function. The origins really come from the brainstem control, which is then further uh, controlled by the brain, the cerebral cortex. And as we know, in Parkinson's, uh, it is the brainstem and the sense of area of smell, the olfactory bundle, that are affected pretty early. And therefore, involvement of the autonomic nervous system is very common in Parkinson and can actually predate the clinical diagnosis of Parkinson. Wow, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Holler, can you tell us why autonomic issues can happen in people with Parkinson's? So patients with Parkinson's disease, as Dr. Chaudhuri just mentioned, can have dysfunction in certain areas of their brain that are impacting the autonomic nervous system. So they can have disease pathology developing in the brainstem and then spreading to other portions of the brain itself, which can then contribute downstream to these difficulties. We do believe that a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease develop issues such as constipation, for example, before they actually develop motor symptoms such as tremor, stiffness, slowness, and gait dysfunction. We also see a progression of autonomic dysfunction throughout the course of patients' Parkinson's disease so that 
people who might not initially have obvious Parkinsonian and autonomic issues may develop worsening autonomic function over time. Oftentimes that is impacting their bladder, as mentioned here, it can impact their blood pressure, the constipation as we mentioned, and sweating. There are a host of other issues that can be impacted by the autonomic nervous system as well. The interesting part is that some of the Parkinson's medications can also further impact some of these autonomic issues. So some of our Parkinson's medicines can drop the blood pressure further. So it's important for people with Parkinson's to understand these autonomic issues so that we can monitor these patients and understand the impact of autonomic system for these individual patients and how that can interplay with their medications. Alpha-synuclein, which is misfolded in Parkinson's, is felt to play a role in this process. Yeah, you know, whenever people talk to me about Parkinson's, they immediately go into the motor symptoms, right? Um, I think the general public, uh, to them, Parkinson's is just what they see, which is tremors, rigidity, and other motor symptoms. And I, and I always tell them, at least for me, tremors are like 15% of my problems. You know, we're just we're, we're dealing with a lot of these things that, are, that that could be invisible to the eye from first observation. So I'm wondering, Brett, if you yourself had any personal experiences with, you know, with that or even with any of any of the, the symptoms that we've already listed. So thanks, Jimmy. And thanks to everyone for being here. So as you mentioned, uh, I was diagnosed in 2007. So it's been about 15 years. And like Dr. Holler mentioned, my first sort of noticeable symptoms or diagnosed symptoms were the sort of traditional ones, tremor, rigidity, um, very minor, not very noticeable, and, and it sort of stayed that way for several years. It was only sort of further into my disease that I started to notice some of the other symptoms that we're going to talk about, sweating, constipation, and for me, even just mo very more recently, blood pressure issues. So, so the beginnings were the sort of the more physical ones, but it probably... If you look back, the, the autonomic issues were, were there as an early sign. I just didn't know them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just it's strange. You know, just looking back, right, um, hindsight is always twenty twenty. You know, uh, you know, living with Parkinson's for almost 20 years now, I, I even look back into teenage years and I can recall some of these things. That, oh, maybe that was due to, to Parkinson's. But uh, Dr. Chowdhury, you know, Brett already talked about, you know, some of the, the issues that he's dealing, we talked about, you know, the bladder issues, the, the blood pressure, constipation, um, et cetera. Are, what are some other examples of um, autonomic uh, issues in, in, in Parkinson's? Thank you, uh, uh, Jimmy and Brad as well. I think it's important to emphasize that Dr. James Parkinson, who described this condition from my city here in London, literally five kilometers away, in his original essay in 1870, mentions his autonomic problems. He mentions bladder problems in his patients. He mentions sleep problems. He mentions constipation. He mentions dizziness on standing. But somehow, as you both said, um, I have a program. In fact, we've written a two-volume book called The Hidden Face of Parkinson, which is basically non-motor aspects. And autonomics dominate those non-motor problems. And some of the key problems we see, and we did a big study across Europe and US and Japan uh, in 2010, actually, when we looked at the prevalence of these non-motor problems using a standardized, que standardized questionnaire, which we had developed, which actually is used through the Fox Finder, the non-motor questionnaire. And we found that in over 50% of medical consultations, non-motor symptoms are never discussed. Uh, the focus is on motor symptoms, tremor, the stiffness, the falls, and the difficulty with movement. Of course, they are crucially important. And in specific answer to your question, uh, uh, Jamie, I would say bladder problems are one of the primary issues, and bladder problems include urgency when you have to go, when you feel like you, you have to pass urine, incontinence in some cases, but most importantly also nocturia getting up at night to pass urine, it becomes a real problem in many, many patients and is a, is a symptom that we see often early in Parkinson. Then low blood pressure, particularly blood pressure dropping in response to standing suddenly, blood pressure dropping after you've had a big meal, 
a big carbohydrate meal. And in some patients, we have shown blood pressure drops after we exercise, so post-exercise uh, hypotension. This can be quite significant because it can make people faint, feel faint, feel dizzy, and become posturally intolerant. Constipation, uh, sweating issues, particularly hyperhidrosis. Some people get drenching, sweating, slip sweats at night, uh, which can wake them up. Uh, and that can be a problem in some. So these would be the the key part of the autonomic problems, but there are many others. Of course, there are bowel-related problems. Uh, aspects of dribbling of saliva could be could be autonomic in nature. Aspects of vision could be autonomic in nature. Aspects of sleep could be autonomic in nature. So it is a it has got a very wide footprint. A lot of it is remains hidden, and we still I still think we need. Very much increased awareness amongst our doctors and nurses, so we can help all people with Parkinson's with these symptoms, and many of these are treatable. Now, you know, it's already been mentioned uh, multiple times um, already today that these things are happening even before uh, motor symptoms are, are are visible to 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 your average person observing. So, you know, Dr. Hall, I was you know. Should should people who are experiencing these things individually, should they be concerned that hey one day I might be diagnosed with Parkinson's or 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 how do we know that um, we should check with our doctors about this? So it's a good question, and I think it's hard to know before a diagnosis of Parkinson's per se. Some people are at higher risk for developing Parkinson's disease, perhaps because they have a family member who has Parkinson's disease, and those people may know to monitor for some of these issues beforehand. I think public education about 10 early signs of Parkinson's, some of those being related to autonomic, that's been very important in terms of getting information out to individuals who may suffer from constipation or even problems with blood pressure before their motor symptoms. But one of the biggest things I think is once somebody has some of the motor features clearly is that we need to be monitoring at each visit for autonomic issues and then individually at home in between visits. One of the things I think is so helpful is to be able to, in a visit, when you're going to see your movement disorder specialist, have your blood pressure taken sitting and standing, and if possible, laying sitting and standing to see if you are having changes in your blood pressure that could suggest that even before you may notice, you are developing some of these autonomic issues. We did some research in terms of our moderate to severe Parkinson's patients and found that 70% of our patients did have drops in their systolic blood pressure um, of 20 points or more in doing this testing or diastolic of 10 points or more, but only 50% of those patients actually felt lightheaded. So your blood pressure may be fluctuating more than you realize if you're just waiting to feel lightheaded. Some people can get a little bit of tightness in the back of their neck when they have drops in their blood pressure. Some people can have leg weakness. So it's important to monitor blood pressure. And definitely if you've been diagnosed as having blood pressure fluctuations, having a blood pressure cuff at home can help with this as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's important to know all these things uh, because sometimes you just don't know these things are happening. Um, you know, mm -hmm. some of the, uh, when it comes to blood pressure uh, or sweating, now we're getting into, and even, even sexual functions, right? It, we're now we're talking about some pretty sensitive and personal issues, right? And and to be honest, I myself was it was tentative and even embarrassed to bring them up with my doctor or even my wife. You know, um, Brett, you know, is is, some, is this something that you deal with as well? And and if if it is, how do you make sure that you address these issues with your own care team? So, so Jimmy, as you know, I don't have a very big filter. So you know, there's pretty much nothing that's off limits. And, and for me. Talking about all this stuff makes it easier, and it puts not only puts me at ease, but it puts my care team at ease. So, and and it doesn't mean I'm not uncomfortable because it's awkward to talk about sweating, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But, it, it, you know, it, it's an awkward symptom, but but it, it's it's actually something you need to, to talk about with your physician and with your care team. Even my doctor sometimes doesn't always raise these issues. I mean, it's interesting that my my blood pressure, for example, um, is normal during my my morning visits with my my doctor. 
but it's it's at other times that I experience it, and my, my wife can experience me with dropping blood pressure. And, and as I mentioned to you, when we were preparing for this, I actually fainted twice uh, from low blood pressure from standing up too quickly. So to answer your question, I think I think honesty and, and candor is the best policy. Uh, your, your care team, whether it's your significant other, your family members, they may observe some things that you're not observing in yourself. Um, and it's important to, to listen to them and, and include them in the conversation and not be embarrassed about the, the more we take away the stigma by talking about it, the less stigma they'll be. Yeah, I love I, I love that advice. And Dr. Chaudhary already mentioned that half more than half the time, right? More than half the time in doctor visits, these issues aren't brought up. And I think it's, it could be because that it's an embarrassing topic. Um, so, no, that's 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 great advice to be open and honest with with people. Um, so, you know, but these we're going to get into a little bit more on on these symptoms and, and more specifically how what we can do to treat them. But for more information on symptoms and factors that can precede a Parkinson's diagnosis, um, those of our audience members, please check out a new educational guide called Better Brain Health. Um, and it's there's a link for it on the resource list on, on, on your screen. Um, understanding these factors may pre, uh, how, how these factors may precede a Parkinson's diagnosis is important, not only for early detection, but also change the course of treatment for each individual. That's one thing that I wish I had known almost 20 years ago. But did you guys know that the, the Fox Foundation's landmark study, the, Markinson, uh, the Parkinson's uh, Progression Marker Initiative, which also known as PPMI, follows both people with and without Parkinson's over a long period of time to learn how the disease starts and it evolves um, along the way. Now, PPMI is recruiting volunteers and people who are recently diagnosed with Parkinson's can play a critical role. Um, once again, click on that resource link to learn more about that. Uh, last thing I'll say about the PPMI is that it aims really to change everything about how Parkinson's is diagnosed, treated, and potentially even prevented. Um, PPMI is open to anybody with or without Parkinson's. I can't stress that enough. Uh, it is not just a study for people with Parkinson's, but it's anybody, people with or without Parkinson's. So you, your family members who are part of your care team, um, please, everybody is welcome to, to participate. Anybody that's over the age of 18 living in the United States, it all starts online. You can get started in the study today by clicking that Get Started button to uh, in the Take Action box on the bottom right of your screen. So let's um, center ourselves and let's come back and talk about how, you know, ways that we can treat some of these issues. Now, recently, I joked that I didn't know if it was age or if it was PD that, you know, my wife and I recently switched sides of the bed so that I could be closer to the bathroom. Now, it could be, could be both, right? But, you know, last time I checked, my friends who are, who are my age, they don't have to get up to go to the bathroom two or three times a night. So, Dr. Chowdhury, what are some things that we can do to, to treat bladder issues? So, <clears throat> bladder problem, um, as I mentioned, is um, consistently listed by people with Parkinson, as you've said yourself, Jimmy, is one of the most troublesome. And because it can be socially embarrassing and also has profound impact on sleep in some people, if you're getting up three, four, five times at night to pass urine, for instance. So I think if you can, you can go by, firstly, the, the common sense approach, which is essentially lifestyle and diet. It's quite important that at near, nearing bedtime, and I'm thinking most people would be looking that at the night time, uh, limiting the amount of fluid intake that you can that you do. At the same time, be aware that dehydration is not good in Parkinson's. You've got to drink about 1.5 to 2 liters a day. At the same time, limit it before night time. And caffeine, which can also precipitate um, uh, uh, urination at night. I would also add to that possibly also alcohol uh, at night time. Uh, pre-bed is not a good thing. Um, then sh you, you need to schedule bathroom breaks throughout the day. That helps with keeping the bladder urge under control. And bladder strengthening exercises actually are very much understated. They are relatively easy to do. You can do it yourself once properly trained up and is incredibly useful as we age. And this would really be useful for holding uh, the the urine or the urinary when the urge comes, so that there is no accidents, so to speak. And then, of course, comes medication. I think medication-wise, I always look at bladder 
problems to be medication to be two ways. The, the ones, as in the slide, are medications to relax the bladder. And that could be through drugs, such as oxybutynin, there is tolteridine, and the one where there is really good evidence, where the Movement Disorder Society would advocate the use of that drug based on level one, which is randomized controlled trial evidence, is solifenacin. More recently, Mirabegron has also become uh, effective. It works uh, not just to relax the bladder, but also to prevent some of the urgency-related urge urges and then the darifenacin. So these are all similar group of drugs. <clears throat> One thing to be careful about these drugs is they have some anticholinergic effects, and they can cause some anticholinergic side effects, and the doctor and the nurse with the person themselves need to be conscious of those and make appropriate management strategies. Then there are, of course, drugs which can also help empty the bladder, and there are several of them uh, that are listed there, and some of them can be used in very specific, personalized manner. One size doesn't fit all. In addition, I also think there is also another option for bladder, which is dopaminergic drugs. We often don't talk about that. Remember that the dopamine, there are five dopamine receptors in the brain, and the dopamine D1 receptor has a specific action on bladder. So drugs, dopamine drugs that works on D1 receptor are effective for bladder. This is a developing area. Currently, there are two big clinical trials coming up, which will be looking at D1 active drugs and bladder function. But already, we have some drugs such as retigotin transdermal patch and even levodopa, which have some action at the D1 receptor. But what is very interesting is D1 active drugs, which are called PAM, which are allosteric modulators at these receptors. We will look forward to those in future. And finally, in terms of nocturia, if you have to get up at night, it would be really good to have a well-lit path to a bathroom so that there are no falls, there are no accidents, if you particularly if the blood pressure drop might be there. And in some cases, in some cases, not in all, we might have to use a catheter to drain so that there is no incontinence in the bed or in the bed area because that itself can lead to its own complications. So you can see management really needs well-thought-out, common-sense pathway. It might need lifestyle changes. And, of course, there is the therapeutic pharma pharmacological options, and there are some new drugs currently being developed, particularly in the dopaminergic arena. Yeah, you know, that's, um, you know, one of my takeaways from that. Uh, but thank you. Uh, the, my, my takeaway from that is there are some, certain things that we can do on our own immediately, like like those lifestyle changes, right? These are things that we can do on our own uh, to help better the situation. But for me, just looking at the list, you know, I really got to get better at clearing my own pathway to the bathroom. Usually it's my dog, she's in the way. So, you know, I always try not to kick her. But, you know, regardless, you know, I'm going to revisit this and then see if I can reclaim my side of the, my far side of the bed back for my wife uh, one day. But, you know, regardless of which side of bed I sleep on, getting out of bed could be a challenge too on its own. Right. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I stand up too quickly and then I get lightheaded. Um, Brett, you already mentioned this. You know, you mentioned uh, that uh, a couple of times already that you fainted. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit more detail about those experiences? No, sure, Jimmy. So, so you know, I, I had normal blood pressure. I have normal blood pressure. Um, I exercise uh, when I can um, and never experienced it. But um, but I did notice a little bit of sort of standing up, and sometimes it's a balance issue, sometimes it's it's blood pressure. But standing up, I felt a little lightheaded. And twice in October, I and I've never passed out in my whole life. And so I was in my living room, and I I stood up too quickly, and the next thing I knew, I was on the floor. I could sort of hear myself hitting the floor, but it was it was very sort of out of body. And and my wife, who saw it, she said, "You just you just collapsed." And it happened again a few weeks later. So I went to see a a, a cardiologist actually, and he prescribed. A medication for uh, for for uh, low blood pressure, but only to take basically three times a week. My blood pressure is generally fine, but it's when I stand up too quickly or at certain moments when I obviously I have a dip. And so you see on the slide, I, I he prescribed. I'm going to guess this wrong. Fludocortisone uh, for me. I know everyone's got to take their own drugs. And I'm not giving medical advice, obviously, but for me, it, just that little bit of slight increase in my blood pressure three times a week was enough to keep my blood pressure basically at normal. So I, I'm still very careful when I stand up. I mean, I'm, I sort of make sure I don't stand up too quickly. 
Um, the big meal thing is, is an important tip because I, I, I realized that when I passed out, I had just eaten dinner and stood up too quickly. So double, double whammy. Um, but so for me, it's, it's, it's now very manageable. I haven't felt any of the low blood pressure since this happened in October and um, everything's sort of back to normal on that front. Well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you're, you're you're feeling much better about that. You know, Dr. Hola, this is a serious one, right? Because someone can seriously get hurt. Uh, Brett, I'm glad you know you 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 took a tumble, but you, I, you know I'm I'm glad you're okay. So you know, here Brett already mentioned a couple of things on the slide that we can do to treat uh, low blood pressure. What are some other things that we can use to treat low blood pressure? Thank you, Jimmy and Brett. Thank you for letting us know about the experience you had, which is very similar to many experiences of our patients. Our goal is to hopefully prevent episodes like this from happening. And by having a good understanding of the autonomic system and then implementing those things that you've done already into an individual's life, improvements can be made that are very significant. So what are the issues with, why is low blood pressure a problem? We hear a lot of media attention about blood pressure being too high and risk for heart disease and risk for be equally problematic because it can result in other things as well. So we did a study looking at individuals who were having their blood pressure in Parkinson's and those individuals were at higher rates of developing cognitive problems and walking problems. And so you can imagine then how low blood pressure, abnormally low, or big drops in your blood pressure could impact your daily life, put you at risk for falls and injury and also cause problems in terms of your day-to-day living. So there are many things that we can do to try and mitigate this issue. The first one is optimizing your lifestyle in terms of your dietary changes. So hydration is so helpful in terms of stabilizing blood pressure, having a consistent amount of hydration in your system. And there are ways to do it that can improve blood pressure without causing as much trouble with urinary difficulties, particularly at night. So what we try to have people do is concentrate their hydration hydration in the beginning part of the day and the first half of the afternoon as much as possible. Blood pressure tends to be lowest in the beginning of the day and then come up a little bit naturally over the course of the day. So start hydration early when the blood pressure tends to have the most bang for our buck. Oftentimes, water with electrolyte can help as well in terms of keeping the fluid in the vascular system rather than having it get processed too quickly through the kidneys and then out through the bladder. So what we advocate for is about 50-50. 50% of your good fluids we often advocate for as being electrolytes for low blood pressure or blood pressure fluctuations, otherwise known as orthostatic hypotension. In addition, Heat in terms of hot beverages and also hot external temperature can also lower the blood pressure. So trying to avoid those. And then alcohol can also reduce blood pressure as well. We've talked a little bit about meals and the impact on, of meals on blood pressure. What happens is when we have a large meal, particularly a large carbohydrate meal, a lot of our blood from our system goes to our stomach and our digestive system to work on the digestive process, which takes it away from other areas and often contributes to this low blood pressure phenomenon. So what we want to encourage is smaller, more frequent meals so that we don't have this kind of what we call a postprandial or after meal issue where our blood pressure may drop significantly. In addition, there are some lifestyle changes that can be helpful. So for example, exercising regularly and particularly working on strengthening legs and leg muscles can be very helpful. So for people with orthostatic hypotension, we often advocate for them to do exercises such as biking and rowing. And so those can be useful. If people do want to exercise and have low blood pressure, there are things we can do such as hydration and sometimes medications that they can take before exercising to help bring their blood pressure up to a good range in order to be able to participate in exercise. In our studies, getting a systolic blood pressure at least of 100 in terms of sitting and standing helps in terms of blood flow and ability to participate in normal activities and also exercise. We want to change positions slowly. And Brett mentioned this before in that when he jumped up too quickly, he was having trouble with getting more lightheaded. So slow position changes are helpful. You don't want to stand still with your knees locked 
for long periods of time, such as being in line when you're doing Christmas shopping. That's a high-risk activity for fainting. You want to make sure your legs stay moving, particularly when you're upright. Compression hose can be very helpful. And in fact, many of my patients wear um, compression hose, particularly ones in the lower portion of their legs from their ankle to below their knee. They find these comfortable and they also can do their activities with these. The more compression, the better. So the higher the rate and the more coverage over the legs, the more benefit you get. But there's obviously a balance between comfort and daily activities and high um, compression high coverage modalities. This is something you can discuss with your movement disorder specialist. It can be very helpful. In addition, as I mentioned, the blood pressure can be lower during the day and then it can get higher during the course of the day. And as we lay down, the blood pressure can be higher than it is when we're standing up. Sometimes the blood pressure can get too high and that's called supine hypertension, more commonly seen in the evening or at night. That can also cause problems with headache or flushing in the face. You can get confusion from this as well. So there are times when monitoring blood pressure, not just in the morning, but in the evening can be helpful and adjusting medications in the evening time to lower blood pressure or raising the head of the bed so we're not so flat can be useful. I mentioned before monitoring blood pressure, having the blood pressure cuff at home can be very useful in terms of teasing out an individual's patterns of blood pressure fluctuations. We are also very fortunate to have medications that can be used for low blood pressure. So particularly designed and FDA approved for Parkinson's is droxydopa, and then medications also that can help for blood pressure that are not specifically for Parkinson's but do help stabilize blood pressure include flutrocortisone and midodrine. They have different mechanisms of action. So sometimes they're used individually, sometimes they're used in combination. And it can be very useful, particularly in terms of the timing of the medicines. Some individuals, like Brett mentioned, may only need these infrequently. Some patients need these medications multiple times a day if they have more serious or more complicated autonomic issues. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ola. You know, um, just looking at this list, I, I learned something new for myself today. Um, you know, I, I, I'm exercise. I'm, a, I'm big with exercise. Exercise is, is my jam, so to speak. And um, my pre-workout uh, drink every, every morning is a hot coffee. Maybe I should change that up a little bit. Uh, maybe a little bit more water like my wife's been telling me for years uh, and, uh, and avoid the hot beverage, uh, before working out. Cause I think the most, the most, most of the times that I do experience, um, low blood pressure, uh, is post-workout. So, uh, hopefully that'll help me out a little bit, but so far we've talked about bladder issues and blood pressure issues, man. I mean, these are some crappy symptoms, right? Uh, just, just to amplifying that point, it's really an important point that, uh, Anna made, um, Exercise-induced blood pressure fall is actually a well-recognized phenomenon um, in autonomic dysfunction, and it's been shown in many studies. And taking water before exercise is actually really important so that you don't precipitously drop your blood pressure even up just after the exercise. It's a really important point. Yeah, thank you. Um, one more, one, one more uh, piece of ammo for my wife to yell at me. <laughs> A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people aged 16 up who have close relatives living with the disease. Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org PPMI to see if you're eligible. That's michaeljfox.org PPMI. Now let's 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 talk about you know something that's not so pleasant, right? Uh, um, let's talk about constipation, and uh, and also sweating. So, Dr. Chowdhury, what are some things that we can do when it comes to constipation and sweating? Yes, so constipation is uh, you know another of those uh, symptoms that, in fact, we now recognize this as a as a prodromal feature. In other words, um, it can pre present. Um, there was a paper by uh, Professor N.H. Rag from here in London in Lancet Neurology, and she showed constipation can be present anything up to 10 years. 
before a diagnosis is made. And more recent work, in fact, using the microchip, the PPMI database, have shown that people with severe constipation who then go on to develop Parkinson might have a higher risk of developing some other complications of Parkinson. So management of constipation is actually really, really very important. And the other thing to remember about constipation, it can be caused by various things. It can be caused by commonly caused in Parkinson's by dehydration. So one general advice for any person with Parkinson is crucial uh, attention to hydration, particularly in hot weather times. And that would be about 1.5 to 2 liters of water a day. And although it might make you paradoxically go to the to the toilet a bit more to pass urine, but it's actually very important for the general hemostasis, for blood pressure, preventing the blood pressure drop, and also constipation. Often that would clear the bowel out quite nicely. But other things are quite standard lifestyle changes, like eating um, regular dietary changes, like uh, fiber to the meals, um, having a high-fiber diet, eating smaller meals on a regular interval, to also help the postprandial uh, changes that might occur after a large carbohydrate meal, for instance. The exercise we've already talked about regularly can help with constipation quite significantly. And more recently, we are certainly uh, advocating probiotics for um, uh, because the gut microbiota is substantially changed in Parkinson and the bad bacteria overcomes the good bacteria and probiotics, but not just any probiotic, probiotics that reach the large gut, and there are some of them, usually liquid ones, they are quite good at restoring the, that normal dynamics of the gut. Uh, and there have been some brilliant piece of work on this shown from work, workers from Helsinki and Finland who've done the work. So that's the sort of general advice. Then medication-wise, yes, of course, you can go for uh, over-the-counter stool softeners and laxatives, and in some very significant cases, we would use enemas. Often when we have people who are coming in for advanced therapies like apomorphine, like levodopa infusion, we would definitely do an abdominal x-ray because often the bowels are quite dilated and that would, constipation can affect your oral tablet absorption. And what we would do in that situation is provide the patient with an enema Usually that clears out the bowel and it improves your tablet absorption quite substantially. So that's a really important part to think about. In terms of prescribing, you can use stool softeners, you can use pro um, uh, peristaltic drugs. And there are many in the market. The one where the evidence base is the strongest is polyethylene glycol, uh, glycol or macrogol. Uh, that's probably the commonest uh, laxative that's used. But in addition, there are reasonable evidence to suggest some of the other drugs which have been listed here, but particularly amitizol lubiprostone, which is often used, apricalopride, which is used particularly for female patients with Parkinson's, and it's used quite commonly in some countries. I'm not totally sure about its availability in the US. Um, in terms of lifestyle changes further, um, uh, I think I think the other thing to remember about is the constipation, um, its link with incontinence. And again, that hap if that happens, um, bowel incontinence or or a inability to or a feeling that your bowel uh, opening a bowel uh, uh, emptying is not complete, that's also an indication when you should discuss that uh, with your medical uh, specialist. But drinking enough fluid a day, I can't. Um, overemphasize the importance of that. Now, but since we're drinking, you know, talking about taking in fluids, um, from from a perspective of sweating, now, uh, what are some things that we can we can we can help with our uh, with people who are dealing with sweating issues? And um, sweating is probably the least you know explored area in terms of um, what we know and how can how we can manage. Um, sweating in Parkinson occurs under diff various different scenarios. Uh, one of the commonest one is when people get fluctuations, so motor fluctuations, you're going from on to off period. And off periods, what often we don't recognize as non-motor fluctuations or non-motor off periods. So that can be often associated with a burst of sweating. 
And in that situation, when the sweating is associated with the levodopa or other drugs wearing off, perhaps the best remedy for that disturbing sweating is to get rid of the off period as much as possible with whatever strategies, either using longer acting dopaminergic drugs or using an enzyme inhibitor like a COMT inhibitor, or perhaps using injectable preparations of dopaminergic drugs. So that's one area where we can definitely help. But also, generally speaking, if a person has a problem of hyperhidrosis, and we often see this at night, the drenching sleep sweat uh, problem, uh, it would be really good to limit and identify the, the sort of food and drinks that might trigger this. And the commonest one are very spicy food and people who are, might not be particularly used to it. And in some cases, antiperspirants uh, might be useful. And there are drugs such as clonidine and so on have been used. But a word of caution, because um, these drugs can also sometimes shut off sweating, which can be uh, which can be detrimental to a central core temperature. So you've got to be careful about that. If it becomes excessive, yes. And then simple advice, like wearing loose-fitting clothes. It's very hot in London today, so I'm wearing fairly uh, loose uh, shirts. Uh, it also can be trendy, depending upon the time and place you're in. And, uh, and cotton socks, rather than a nylon and other non-absorbent socks, basically absorbent socks. And... One thing that I think is relevant to sweating, but not just sweating, also postural dizziness, is avoiding standing if it's really hot uh, outdoors for any long period of time, because that can also precipitate a faint. Um, so I think that those would be the practical aspects that might, you know, go in with the sweating issue. Yeah, you know, both of these uh, constipation and sweating hits close to home for me personally. How about you, Brad? What do you think? Um, I are there some some things that, that, that you do to, to help ease the situation? Because, I mean, you work in high-pressure situations, right? And I, and I imagine that uh, in some so situations. If you've ever seen uh, uh, broadcast news with Albert Brooks, that's what it's like for me sometimes. I, I could be about to give a speech or give a uh, talk at a meeting, and the sweat just it just comes pouring out of all everywhere. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I follow a lot of the tips that we talked about. I also uh, I, I always try to have an extra shirt around, um, an extra undershirt around. Um, I went to a concert recently, and I knew I'd be sweating from that. I had a, a change of clothes afterwards, so you know it's it's hard, it's embarrassing, but but it's but it, and and it's uncontrollable at times. And so, um, you know, these are these are just great tips for those sort of lifestyle changes. The constipation, I feel like like it's I was I was I was destined to have constipation because so for many years I was so regular, and I would I would sort of brag to my wife about how regular I was. I go you know every day like clockwork in the morning. I was like a like a, a well oiled machine. And then my constipation started to kick in. Instead of going every day, I was going every other day. And now it's every three days or sometimes longer. And so, um, uh, you know, I've, I've tried some of the dietary things, although not all of them, which I need to follow. Uh, water is something I need to take more of. And I've tried some of the, the uh, stool softeners, over-the-counter products. And um, let's just say that my, my wife's now getting the last laugh at me because I'm, I'm now sweating like she does. And I'm, I have constipation like, like a lot of women do. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's some justice in the world. I think it's, I think it's, uh, but all joking aside, um, you know, these are all symptoms that, that I've now talked to my doctor, doctors about because not talking about them is not going to help them. Yeah. One big difference between men and women is that we're, men are big giant babies. So, um, you know, we, we tend to cry and, and complain about it more, but you know, that brings up a, a, a actually a very good point. Um, Dr. Haller, there are many women living with PD who are in their late forties and early fifties, right? So how how can how can they tell the difference between sweating that's related to Parkinson's versus uh, menopausal sweating? Jimmy, thank you for this question. This is a very important area that we're exploring in more detail now, in terms of how perimenopause and menopause impact people's Parkinson's symptoms. So I have a number of women who present to the clinic who discuss issues with night sweats or sweats in general. And the question is often, is this related to what I'm going through in terms of my hormonal changes? Is this related to Parkinson's? And how do we tease it apart? 
So we do a variety of things to try and under, better understand it. Some of it is taking details about the history, when the episodes are occurring. Is there some kind of pattern that might be more related to Parkinson's medication doses and the wearing off that Dr. Chowdhury mentioned? Or is it more of a time of day or fluctuations with kind of the time of the month, for example? There are also um, tests that can be done to look at hormone levels, which can help to tease out whether somebody may be premenopausal as well. So we use a lot of that information to try and get a better sense. And then management in conjunction with these lifestyle change management things that we talked about for Parkinson's, there may be some other um, over-the-counter therapies that can be helpful for individuals who may also be perimenopausal. So we talk about that with our patients. We also collaborate closely with their OBGYN, their GYN doctors in terms of collaborative medication management. It's definitely an area that we're looking into more now to try and best answer the questions for those patients. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, I, it's, it, you shouldn't thank me for the question. Brett teed it up really good. It's just kind of uh, the, the transition was perfect for, uh, for that. So thank you, Brett, for that. Um, so Dr. Holler, your research focuses on autonomic dysfunction. Um, perhaps you can tell us more about research and maybe how it's leading to new therapies. Yes, yeah, so exciting time for autonomic dysfunction. When I was in medical school, there wasn't much discussion about the autonomic nervous system, but now when the medical students and the PA students and all of our learners, nursing students come through our clinic, we spend a lot of time talking about this, not just related to Parkinson's, but also with other disorders as well. There is definitely a big emphasis on autonomic because it impacts individuals' quality of life, the course of their disease as well. We do know that those individuals who have more poorly are not able to stabilize the autonomic so well, then they might have more quick progression of their disease, for example, because they might end up getting more problems with constipation, their meds might, might not work as well, they might end up having more complications in terms of falls and other things. So understanding the autonomic system, understanding how to stabilize it over the course of the disease or over the course of the day, understanding, as Dr. Chaudhary mentioned, the brain-gut connection and the gut we talk about as being the central portion of success with Parkinson's. If we can get our gut functioning and trying to have a bowel movement every day, we're more likely to get good absorption of our hydration. We're more likely to get good and effective use of our medications. They're more likely to be consistent in terms of their absorption and their impact on our system. And as a result, if we can potentially impact the gut microbiome long-term, we might be able to slow progression of the disease or potentially even look towards cures down the line as well. In addition to diagnosis and monitoring, new therapies like continuous infusion therapies for Parkinson's patients or deep brain stimulation deep brain stimulation therapies, which allows us to use lower doses of medications, which potentially can also contribute to drops in blood pressure. So as we know, carvedopa levodopa, for example, can drop blood pressure, particularly when it goes through our gut. And so that also might be something that we have to factor in when we're talking about the management of our patients. So there's a lot to be learned in terms of autonomic. There's a lot we can do in terms of stabilizing autonomic symptoms for our patients and improving their quality of life. And mitigating the progression of autonomic degeneration is one of our big highlights in terms of therapeutic intervention as well. Thank you, Dr. Oler. Um, and thank you, Dr. Chowdhury and Brett for your insights as well. I wanted to make sure that we have some time left for questions. Uh, we're about 10 minutes left. Um, you know, we've been receiving a lot of questions already, but it's not too late if you have any questions. Um, just a quick reminder for our audience to please type it in the Q&A box. And we're going to get to as much of them as we can in the 10 minutes remaining. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and, you know, we're, since we're on the topic, actually, Dr. Holly, you just talked about this real quickly and how um, uh, carbidopa and levodopa uh, impacts, can, can impact blood pressure. Um, so you know, maybe, can it, maybe it's a question for for both you and, and Dr. Chowdhury, but, uh, you know, what are some ways that people can manage that better? I mean, if we know that, if we know that the side effects is causing uh, the low blood 
blood pressure change? What are some things that we can do to manage that? I think one of the first things to know is that when you take your carvedopa, levodopa, it should be taken with a big glass of water. That helps to reduce, um, stabilize the absorption. So it's absorbed a little bit more continuously rather than in an uneven manner. And then it also helps to mitigate some of the drop of blood pressure that we might see. If taking the carvedopa, levodopa does cause a big drop and it's not alleviated by the compression stockings, hydration, electrolytes, sometimes changing the timing, reducing perhaps the the dose itself, changing the timing, those things can help. And also other medications can be used for Parkinson's if people are having a significant problem with carvedopa, levodopa as well. I totally agree with that. I, I think changing the timing here because levodopa, of course, it's the gold standard for Parkinson's. And, you know, once you are on levodopa, likely so you will be on it for the rest of your life. Um, so changing the timing, particularly I advise people to take it actually before any meal, often in empty stomach. The effects are less obvious than you might have it with a meal and the meal-related vasodilatation or dilatation of blood vessel that occurs. Um, and, and, and also, in addition... Um, avoiding too much uh, uh, supine uh, uh, sort of standing activity after immediately after taking the tablets often help because what happens is if you take levodopa, it starts becoming active in about 25, 30 minutes. And if you're doing a lot of physical activity standing at that time, you might aggravate the blood pressure drop. So you can take some simple steps to see if you can counteract this. Along with this, as was mentioned in some situations, uh, compression stocking and so on, if it's not helping, keeping the fluid intake going. And I often add in a vitamin C tablet per day, and that also seems to have a beneficial effect, although it's not evidence-based. Um, so these are these are sort of some maneuvers you can do. Um, but, you know, you have to carry on with the levodopa, and so one has to find a way. Thank you. Um, so there's another, here's a question for you for both of you again, uh, you know, we talked about how, how to tell the difference between, um, you know, uh, menopausal changes and, and Parkinson's uh, sweating. So here's a question that's more related to, to the men is that how can we uh, distinguish differences between urinary changes in PD versus say an enlarged prostate for men? Dr. So John, I should start, start with that one. I think both of us probably have some ideas on that. Okay. Um, so again, I, some of it comes from the history in terms of has it been related to progression of disease, progression of um, medication usage at certain times. Some individuals also can benefit from an exam to find out whether or not um, their prostate is enlarged in terms of uh, exam with their primary care doctor, for example. That can help in terms of exam findings. Um, in addition to that, there are additional in evaluations of the bladder that can be done that can help tease this out as well. So there's history taking and then there's different testing that can be done to help with this. Yeah, I, I again, totally agree. I think it's key is the history and examination. And I always say there is a issue in Parkinson that often other physicians, not neurologists, maybe when they see a problem in Parkinson, they always blame the Parkinson. So I think it's really important that you dive deep into it and ensure that it has been seen by urologists to have been examined. And the prostate, as, as you just said, Anna, is, is examined and there is no obvious prostate omegaly. Uh, but of course, we have to remember that both might coexist as well. Um, so it's a complex situation, but I think clinical examination by a suitable specialist in certain areas, along with history taking, will absolutely be the key, as you said. So the next question uh, comes from an, an, uh, an audience member who is, you know, we talked about sweating, right? Uh, so, and this is an intriguing question for me too, because I, you know, we, I think, I know there are a couple, multiple studies uh, out there around um, odor and body odor and, and, and PD. So is foul body odor linked to Parkinson's? Do we have any more information on, on, on that? It's very interesting, this question, because um, I don't know whether the audience is familiar, but there have been research studies where people have been looking at the possibility of body odor uh, being a predictor for people developing Parkinson. In fact, in the UK, 
there are at least two studies where specially tamed dogs have been uh, have been used in studies to to detect out people with Parkinson. It doesn't necessarily mean a malodor, but it means a peculiarity in the order which might be associated with the dopamine metabolism and some of the metabolites and how the sweat is excreted through the sweat glands. So it, it is it is a very interesting area and one that can be perhaps be used in ongoing research in future. I'm not aware of the final data from that study, but certainly one study was ongoing about the dog. And I know a friend of mine from Seattle had sent me some information on that about a similar project going on there. So, Anna, I don't know whether you know more about this. So this is exactly the study I was going to be bringing up as well. So the work with the dogs, and dogs can be utilized in a variety of different um, medical issues in terms of diagnosis. They have a much acute sense of smell and may perceive things that, as humans, we are not able to to such a degree. There is some speculation about whether or not it is related to the dopamine receptors, the breakdown of certain systems in the body in terms of how the sweat is processed in the patients with Parkinson's as well, whether or not it's higher levels of sweating in certain portions of the body that may contribute to some of the body odor as well, or the actual metabolism in the sweat glands and whether that may be impacted by Parkinson's. So it's a fascinating area, but it it is an area where we want to spend more time and energy because if it is something where we can have a simple test to evaluate individuals, perhaps without having to examine them physically, et cetera, um, or in addition to that, that might help give us clues about Parkinson's, we're all very interested in this. Great, thank you. We have uh, just about two minutes left. Um, I think we're going to take one last question. I think this is uh, this is an important question, and I want to bring this up because nobody really wants to talk about it because it is it might be an embarrassing topic. So, uh, of course, is it actually has been several questions about uh, sexual dysfunction uh, due to autonomic symptoms. Um, how 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 do how do we go about that? Where do we start? Um, you know. It's, do we start with our doctors, or I mean, where do we where do we go, um, Dr. Holler? We'll start with you. Yes, and this is obviously a very important issue, and it affects not just the Parkinson's patients, but obviously the the family dynamic as well. So we try to ask about these non motor symptoms in all of our visits, and I know um, Dr. Tauderi has developed a wonderful questionnaire that goes through a lot of these non-motor issues that can be useful. And an individual can take this questionnaire or they can go through it with their specialist to be able to tease out issues. So sexual dysphonomic patients can be very profound in terms of being able to have the energy for sexual activity or actually not being able to perform in terms of different functions of sexual activity. And so oftentimes we need to get good history about what's happening and determine whether or not the autonomic system may be impacting it. There does seem to be some data that if we can stabilize blood pressure and try and reduce these low blood pressure episodes, then people may be able to preserve their sexual functioning perhaps a bit longer. But this is being worked out in quite a bit of detail right now. Yeah, I, I think, again, Anna, you're, you're absolutely spot on. And in answer to your question, Jamie, I think it's an obligation we as physicians working in the field have to help our patients with particularly these problems. Certainly, it's been my area of interest for so long. And I do find the non-motor questionnaire very useful because people who may not want to discuss it openly often would tick those questions, like two questions on sexual function. And that just leads you to a discussion. Now, that discussion may have to be with you, or maybe some people might feel it better to do it with a nurse specialist or somebody of their own gender. It also varies amongst different cultures, different races, different backgrounds, and so on. It's a very complex area. But in terms of management, we can do a lot because sexual dysfunction can not just affect the person with Parkinson, as Anna said, it can affect the carer. Um, it can affect relationships, etc. Then we have impulse control disorder, which can also manifest to some extent with sexual dysfunction and so on. So it's a huge area and one that we really need to focus on and develop more uh, transparency and management strategies in future. 
Yeah, thank you guys. Um, thank you very much. Uh, actually, I didn't even think about that, right? About the, uh, the the compulsion or the or the, um, the the needs and the wants of of human thoughts that around this. But unfortunately, guys, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, you again for being a part of our community and for joining us today, everybody. And once again, thank you to our panelists for sharing your time and expertise with all of us. I hope you guys found all of this to be very helpful. Thank you very much and have a great day, everybody. Take care. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.